Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com/fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com/fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Ants, they love to inhabit the soil in your outdoor potted plants and maybe your indoor plants as well. And they aren't doing your plants any good. We have tips today for getting the ants out of your potted plants. We're talking roses as well, including the history of roses, which is only about 3,000 years long. Hey, now that you're fully vaccinated and itching to take a vacation, don't forget your garden. We have suggestions on how to keep your garden looking good while you're away. It's all on episode 99 of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, brought to you today by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. And we'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. We get emails we like to answer here on the Garden Basics podcast, and one comes in from Sarah down in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Debbie Flower is here, our favorite retired college horticultural professor. Sarah has ants, and she says, I just discovered that a few of my fabric pots seem to have a colony of ants living in the soil. We just came out of a week of very heavy rain, and the fabric plants drain well. So I'm thinking they moved inside to avoid drowning. Will they hurt my plants? They are currently in a few sweet pepper pots that don't seem to be doing much of anything. But they are also in my Cherokee purple tomato, which has a promising tomato forming. As you can imagine, that tomato is my most prized and celebrated thing in my world right now. So do those ants pose a threat? Here's Debbie with the bad news. (laughs) I, I understand ants moving into pots. I've had it happen many times. And they often, when when the pot gets watered, all the ants come out and climb up on the plants to stay away from the water. So I think your thinking, Sarah, is right on that they moved into the pots because it was a less wet place to be. And that made for a better home. And so they're in there with their queen and they're all organized. They have all have jobs. And uh, but one of their jobs is to collect food. And so they tend uh, some insects that we don't want on our plants, insects like aphids and scale that produce something called honeydew. The aphids and scale put their mouth parts into the plant to get the sap and the pressure inside the plant uh, in that sap pushes it so hard into their mouths they can't consume it all really fast. And so they have a special digestive system that lets some out untouched. And that's called honeydew. And that honeydew is nirvana for the ants. And so they will tend the the aphids and scale, which we do not want on our plants. They're damaging to our plants in order to get that honeydew. So that's always my fear when I see ants around my plants. And if they're living in the pot, they're right there. So, yes, the bad news is that ants contend the bad insects that are potentially going to attack or are attacking your desirable plants. And boy, I would hate to see you lose that cherokee purple tomato. So there are ant baits. Most of them have boric acid or borate in them. Uh, and they you can put those baits. They're made for outside. They're made for inside. They're, they come in stakes where you, if you, you need to follow the directions. The last ones I used said to put a little water in the hole in the stake and twist it around with a pencil or something. They're all different. So make sure you read the directions and install them 
per directions, but they're very effective. They also have some sugary substance, like the honeydew is sugary in them, but they have a little bit of borax in them, and the the ants will eat it and take some back to their queen. Borax is a drying agent. It is not harmful to your pets or you or uh, a frog if it happens to live in there at the rates that are uh, in that bait. And so they bring it back to the ants, bring it back to their queen. The queen has enough of it that she dries out and dies. And once the queen dies, the colony disperses. So they'll find someplace else to go and they'll make a new queen. The other problem with having ants in those containers, too, are the tunnels they're digging. And if you're trying to water those plants, the water could be running down those tunnels and out without doing your plant roots any good at all. That's very true. So that's uh, one reason to uh, get rid of them. What about using the uh, powder form of uh, the borate? Uh, sometimes it's sold in containers called roach proof. Yes. But how do, you could apply it to the surface. But then you have to water that container. So that that's an issue. So I'm thinking the only way that would work is if you have drip irrigation, uh, true drip in that container, would you be able to apply the borate and the ants would be able to get to it without it uh, basically getting wet and dissolving? Washing through. Boy, I don't know enough about the borate to do that. You could try just putting it on the surface. I know you've used it on the surface of uh, like piled mulch yep. that where the ants move in. They do like that open yeah. texture. And and leave it for a little bit and the ants die or move out. So I, I, I think you could do it. Certainly worth a try. The boric acid or roach proof is not very expensive. It's available at your garden center and uh, comes in a usually a round bottle. Usually there's it's white and there's some red on the label and it is roach proof is one brand. Put put it on the surface. And if you're hand watering, water it in and see what happens. See if the ants it won't happen immediately. It's not like a contact pesticide where it touches the ant, the ant falls over and dies immediately. It takes, how long, two weeks? Yeah, it takes a couple of weeks. Be patient with that. Right. I, you know what I might try is uh, watering that container thoroughly and then sprinkling the roach proof or the borate uh, on top of the soil because that soaking may force the ants up and then they realize, oh boy, we're in the restaurant now. And right. then they'll they, stay there and really cover themselves in it. Right. The boric acid itself will not be eaten by the ants, but it will cover their bodies and it causes them to dehydrate. So that's, uh, you know, another thing, too, uh, we've been saying all along that, oh, yeah, you can find these uh, borate products in, in mm -hmm. ant bait and ant control products very commonly. It's not as common as it used to be. Uh, it's amazing the number of ant baits that have synthetic ingredients on shelves now. Oh. And so you really have to read those small print labels to make sure it says something about borax or borate or orthoborate to right. make sure it has it in it. If it's a word that you can't pronounce, keep looking. So there's always an active ingredient section on the label. That's by law. Could be on the front, could be on the back. And it'll list the active ingredient, which as Fred just listed the ones you want to look for. And it might have more than one if it has a second one. And as Fred said, if it, you can't pronounce it, it's a synthetic. <laughs> and then it'll say not inert ingredients. And that'll be the majority of what's in there. Yeah. But you don't want that second can't pronounce word. You just want borate, orthoborate, borax, and then inert ingredients. There are also liquid boric acid products available yes. that you can put in refillable containers. Usually you dilute it with water and you could put those outside those fabric containers to attract the ants. Yes. And that that would you might then see a line of them crawling down the pot if you can visualize ants on a black fabric pot. But um, they come in colors now. <laughs> the, oh, the, the fabric pots. Yes. Oh, yes. oh, how cool is that? 
Uh, so you can see the ants maybe climb, climbing down or out the drain holes or something, and they'll feed at that uh, bait station like pigs at a trough. It's just the best thing since sliced bread for them. And But then they take it back to the queen. And if you really want the ants to move out, you've got to get that queen. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred to see all the colors available oh, in fabric pots. do that. <laughs> right. Okay. Sarah, I hope that helps. Uh, yeah, you don't want ants in those containers. Good luck. Debbie, thanks so much. Oh, it's a pleasure. We're glad to have SmartPots on board supporting the Garden Basics podcast. SmartPots are the original award-winning fabric planter. They're sold worldwide. SmartPots are proudly made 100% in the USA. I'm pretty picky about who I allow to advertise on this program. My criteria, though, is, is pretty simple. It has to be a product I like, a product I use, a product I would buy again. And SmartPots clicks all those boxes. They're durable. They're reusable. SmartPots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value stores nationwide. To find a store near you, visit SmartPots.com Fred. It's SmartPots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to SmartPots.com Fred for more info and that special Farmer Fred discount on your next SmartPot purchase. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. You have a small yard and you think you don't have the room for fruit trees? Well, maybe you better think again because Dave Wilson Nursery wants to show you how to grow great tasting fruits, peaches, apples, pluots, and a lot more in small areas. You could even grow them in containers on patios as well. It's called Backyard Orchard Culture. And you can get step-by-step -step information via the fruit tube videos at DaveWilson.com. And that's where you're going to find the closest nursery to you that carries Dave Wilson's quality fruit trees. So start the backyard orchard of your dreams at DaveWilson.com. For many of us, full vaccination means that very soon we are going to be traveling again. We'll be visiting friends and family that we haven't seen in over a year. If you're thinking of rushing out the front door in the near future or during the hot summer months ahead, be sure to plan ahead to ensure that your garden will thrive while you're away. Your garden is always hard at work. It doesn't get a vacation. It's growing leaves, food, and flowers. And your lawn doesn't know you're away either. It's going to keep growing. If you plan on being away for an extended period during the coming warm weather months, a little garden labor now and some judicious irrigation planning will ensure a healthy yard when you return. Here are some tips for before you go on vacation. Plants in containers can suffer if the soil is allowed to dry out, and that can be in as little as 24 hours during a heat wave. To help ensure that doesn't happen, raise those pots off of the hot concrete surfaces. Use a plant stand or strips of wood. Outdoor potted plants and hanging plants should be moved to cooler, shadier areas, such as the north or east side of your house or beneath a patio cover before you leave. Placing plants close together can help keep those containers cooler as well. Add a few inches of mulch if there's room in the top of the container. That'll help preserve moisture. For your favorite outdoor potted plants, hook up a battery-operated timer to a faucet. Install a drip system or micro-sprayers in those containers and make sure it works. Be sure to water the soil around your garden plants deeply the day before you leave. 
A few inches of compost or mulch on top of the soil will help keep the area from drying out prematurely. For more blossoms to welcome you when you get home, snip off the faded flowers or the dead rose blooms before going on vacation. Another group that doesn't go on vacations? Slugs and snails. They'll be nibbling on your plants while you're gone. Apply a granular snail killer product that contains iron phosphate as the active ingredient. Don't invite trouble with an overgrown front yard lawn. Mow and trim the front lawn the day before you leave. If you're going to be away for an extended period of time, have a friend or neighbor mow your front lawn and also keep an eye out for any malfunctioning sprinklers if you have an irrigation system. Don't fertilize the lawn or garden before you leave. That extra nitrogen will just force a spurt of growth on the plants and that will require more water. Run the automatic irrigation system manually during the day before you leave to check that everything is working properly. Repair any broken or damaged sprinklers, as well as sprayers and drip lines. And don't forget about your indoor garden as well. Before you leave on that vacation, water all your house plants thoroughly. Place the plants out of direct sunlight, and this will help the plants retain moisture while you're away. And by the way, have fun. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast has a lot of information posted at each episode, transcripts, links to any products or books mentioned during the show, and other helpful links for even more information. Plus, you can listen to just the portions of the show that interest you. It's been divided into easily accessible chapters, and you're going to find more information about how to get in touch with us. You can leave an audio question without making a phone call. You do it via SpeakPipe. Go to speakpipe.com slash garden basics. It's easy. Give it a try. If you're listening to us via Apple Podcasts, put your question in the ratings and review section. You can text us questions and pictures or leave us your question at 916-292-8964. That's 916-292-8964. And you can email us, fred at farmerfred.com. And please tell us where you're from, because that'll help us greatly accurately answer your garden questions. Because after all, all gardening is local. In the show notes, you'll find links to all our social media outlets. That includes Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, you'll find a link to the farmerfred.com website. And thanks for listening. Here on the Garden Basics Podcast, we like to answer your garden questions. Recently, Holly wrote in with a picture to the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page and left this for Debbie. So I guess Debbie will be answering the question. (laughs) Debbie Flower, retired college horticultural professor, is with us. And Holly asks, Debbie, any idea what's causing this mutation? By the way, it just occurred to me that she might be referring to uh, Master Rosarian Debbie Arrington. Ah, there you go. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I feel you're qualified, too, to answer this as well, Debbie Flower. Uh, no, Debbie Arrington definitely knows her roses. So. Yes. And any idea what's causing this mutation? And the picture is of a very distorted red rose flower. It's a red rose flower. And then in the center, there are some green parts. Uh, and I suspect what's happening is something called proliferation or bullheading. And it is a mutation. It happens typically just to the first uh, roses that appear on a plant in spring. Its cause is not well known, not understood. Uh, But 
once that is you deadhead, meaning you remove the spent flower of the rose, the next set of roses that come up on that plant will probably not have the problem. Some uh, cultivars or types of roses are more prone to this problem than others, but it typically only happens in spring. Now, one thing to maybe understand is that flowers are modified leaves and they've been modified in nature to attract the pollinator. And sometimes we'll see green come up in the middle of a flower and that's just one of those petals that didn't get modified. It just came out as a leaf. But in bullheading and proliferation, it's the cells, they're called the apical cells. The apex is the tip. So the cells at the tip of the, the branch or, or the tip of the flower continue to divide and make more petals and more petals and more petals. And you can end up with actually multiple flowers within the same flower. It's usually two. Sometimes you end up with three flowers. Each flower has around it what's called the sepals or the uh, other modified leaves that protect it when it's in bud. And so you get this mishmash of colorful petals and then green petals if you have a third flower in the same head. So don't panic. It's not a big deal. If you don't like the look of it, cut that flower off. You don't need to cut the branch. The branch should produce regular looking roses uh, after that one has been removed. And the cause is, as I said, the cause is unknown. Some people think it's physical damage, possibly by an insect, or it's due to temperature, which is the one I would favor, or a virus. If it happens over and over and over and over again on that plant, it's more likely to be a virus. But realize that roses live very happily with viruses in their system, and it isn't something to worry about. And as far as temperature goes, uh, I imagine a, a late frost after the flower started forming might be a possibility, too. Yes. Flower buds are some of the parts of the plant that are most sensitive to cold. And so if, if you do get a late frost, and we had some very cold nights there for mm -hmm. in March, uh, while that flower is forming in the bud, then that can cause the problem. Yes. How would you differentiate what you have been describing from glyphosate damage, from Roundup damage. If somebody was using a weed killer around their roses and uh, some of the drift uh, caught on to uh, one of those buds, would, would that damage look different? The times I have seen glyphosate damage uh, on plants, it causes uh, parts to become thinner and more strappy. And it would not just be on the flower, it would be on the leaves as well. So you wouldn't just have a distorted flower, you'd have distorted leaves. And if it blew in from a spring application while the plant was actively growing, it would be on one side, whatever side that was, that received the glyphosate through the wind. And so it would be flowers and leaves, and they would be, if they received it while it was in the bud, if the glyphosate came into the plant while the plant was in the flower bud, then the petals would likely be very thin and long. If it came while the plant was already had leaves and flowers on it, they would become distorted, twisted, and the leaves would be as well. So there you go. Uh, basically, don't worry too much about it. And I guess if you don't like it, just cut off the flower head. Yes. All right. Debbie Flower, thanks so much for your help answering questions here on Garden Basics. You're welcome, Fred. 
every week we like to talk with Warren Roberts. He is the superintendent emeritus of the UC Davis Arboretum, and he always has an interesting plant for us, a plant that you could find throughout much of the United States, if not all of the United States. It might be a plant that's putting on a show now as well. And Warren, I I think uh, about now the plant you're about to talk about is doing its thing uh, coast to coast. Maybe maybe not in, in the upper peninsula of Michigan yet, but but soon. Yes, well, I thought we could talk about roses, and I, th- I, think, I think that that's very brave of me because uh, there's so much information. A few of observations that, that I have, a little bit of information about the, about the genus. It's a genus of um, woody shrubs, sometimes uh, clambering shrubs, uh, there are about 45 species in Europe, and most of those you can have any color you want of flowering as long as it's pink, <laughs> with a few with a few exceptions. <laughs> there are about 100 species total, a lot of them in China. In North America, California has, I think, about uh, 9 or 10 species native to the state. They were grown, uh, cultivated um, well, let's see. I think they've been cultivated for at least three thousand years uh, in both China and uh, the Chinese area and in and in Europe. Famous in the Roman Empire, uh, and there are about thirty thousand name selections available. M- mostly, what we see with roses in our gardens are hybrids. The most important group of hybrids uh, are crosses between the European species and the Mediterranean species, and the ones from China. Now, that didn't really start happening until the 1700s when Europeans went to, to China, especially the port of Canton. I think it's called Guangdong now. But at any rate, there were not very many kinds of roses. There were some climbing roses like the Banks rose. And then there were some, I think there were six different shrub roses. And those were brought back to Europe and crossed with the, hybridized with the, uh, the local uh, European and Mediterranean natives. To produce what we have today, we think of as, as the, the the garden rose. In Europe, before the introduction of the Chinese roses, all the roses were pretty much deciduous. They says they dropped their leaves in the in the cool season, and they really only bloomed in the spring, with a very few exceptions. When they did bloom, the fragrance was amazing, and uh, some of those uh, roses are still grown today for the perfume. The Chinese roses didn't have so much fragrance. They had a nice fragrance, uh, tea-like, uh, people said. So that's why they're called tea, roses, hybrid teas, and so on. But they had things that the European roses didn't have. One was pure red. What we think of as blood red or ruby red. That color just was not in European roses. And then they tended to be blooming, have a long blooming period, and some of them had bloomed a little bit at least all year. That was amazing to uh, European horticulturalists of those years. It's still amazing. Let's see. Oh, the disease resistant was pretty good, and some of them didn't have too many prickles. Uh, it turns out that roses don't really have thorns. They have prickles, technically. A thorn is like a short stem, whereas a prickle is just an outgrowth from the outer uh, surface of the uh, of the bark of, of the shrub. Roses then entered a whole new phase of popularity. Roses were not exceedingly popular in China because you, in, in, in the feng shui, you don't want to have something in the garden that will wound you. Hmm. And roses can do that. 
Yeah. As a little kid, I loved I loved rose flowers. But I didn't like the bushes because I, the embracing a rose bush is is almost the definition of unrequited love. France was an important area of rose breeding, and then in unusual places, like in the French Empire, there, there was an island out in the middle of the Indian Ocean that was called Ile de Bourbon, and I think they grew sugarcane there at the lower elevations, and then the owners lived up, up, up higher on the mountain where it was cooler, and they grew shrubs. And it was there that a, uh, a Chinese rose hybridized with the um, with the damask rose. So right away you had the all the good characteristics of the Chinese rose and the fragrance of the Mediterranean roses. And that group of roses are called the Bourbon roses. And my favorite rose is one that in that group, and it's called uh, Madame Isaac Pereira. Um, it, it has a somewhat complex history. But uh, um, Madame Isaac Pereira is usually how you hear it pronounced here. I have one that's gone um, about uh, 18 feet up into a shrub, so <laughs> it can get it can get big. But it is, to my nose, the most fragrant of roses. That's of course debatable, but it really, really has a strong fragrance. We and, we should probably point out that the rose is also the uh, national flower of the United States. Ah, yes. And the national flower of the United States, probably not uh, based on the native North American species, but but on these hybrids. One of the reasons I like roses is they have almost no disease problems in California. In, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, we don't have we don't have summer rain. So the diseases that plague literally roses in other parts of the country, like black spot and others. Are, are rare or unknown here in California. It's one reason a lot of the, the cultivation of roses for selling the plant is, is, is done in California because if you surface irrigate, uh, then you don't have the diseases. Sprinkler irrigation, though, uh, <laughs> then you have to make sure that you do that uh, so that it dries immediately. You have a, a personal history with roses because where you grew up, isn't too far from where roses are grown as a commercial crop. Yes, especially in the town of Wasco, California, which is in Kern County. The soil there is, is sandy, well-drained, and, and fertile. When I was a kid, that area was, they grew cotton and then potatoes, but now it's roses. And if you go by it this time of year, there are fields and fields of bright-colored roses Kind of like the tulips in in Holland or northwestern Washington, California is <laughs> is a good place for roses in all kinds of ways. Roses, it's the national flower. It's a easy to grow plant. You can put as much love or as much indifference to it as you want, and it will still bloom. We can witness around here the uh, roses that the 49ers brought with them uh, back in the 1800s and planted that are still alive in the foothills that have been neglected for decades. Yes, in fact, the larger the rosebush is, the more flowers it produces. Um, I, I have a rose called Montchérie, which is a, a, a hybrid tea, I believe, and I've let it get up to about 15 feet tall. The thing to do is that I do is I, I prune out the dead branches, and, and otherwise, um, I, I, I want the flowers in the garden to enjoy from the house or while you're in the garden. If you want long stem roses, well, then then there are different ways of, of, of pruning the, the roses to produce that. But I just like to look out as I can do see right now. I'm looking out and see more sherry in full bloom. There you go. Um, roses, 
Everybody should have a rose. I mean, really. And don't forget, you can make tea out of the rose hips. So it's a food, too. Yes. In fact, there's rose petal jam from the Eastern Mediterranean, which is a delight. Warren Roberts is the superintendent emeritus of the UC Davis Arboretum. You ought to visit the UC Davis Arboretum. You you can even visit them online at arboretum.ucdavis.edu, where you can read about their arboretum and all the plants there. And next time you're in the Davis, California area, you ought to come by and, and pay it a visit. And you won't have to pay much because it's free. Warren Roberts, always a pleasure. The plant of the week this week, the rose. Thank you, Warren. Thank you, Fred. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday and is brought to you by Smart Pots. It's available just about anywhere, and that includes Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And for Northern California gardeners, it's the Green Acres Garden Podcast with Farmer Fred. It's available also wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. And thanks for listening.